Chapter 6. This is the last narrative story of Daniel. Years have gone by. And there, there, here's Daniel in his old age. And he is still being used by God. And this is one of the kind of... In our culture, we think like when you become old, you're irrelevant. That's just the American way of thinking about things. We don't have respect for elders. In the ancient world, when you become old, you become even more relevant. And so, because there's great wisdom and experience there. Chapter 6, verse 1. It seemed like a good idea to Darius the, to be to appoint over the kingdom 120 satraps. This Darius the Mede in verse 31 of chapter 5 is the same Darius in chapter 6. The problem is we have no idea who this guy is. No idea at all. Lots of people have once again thrown this at the Bible and said, there you go, there's your inaccuracy. There's no historical reference to Darius the Mede at all, and therefore the Bible's wrong. But once again, I can rattle off at least 30 different instances from the top of my mind of things that have been naysayed for years, and then archaeological discovery comes along and proves that Pilate actually is real, David is actually real, that Solomon's actually real, that Jehu, the king of um, Israel, is actually real. Like We just keep finding these things eventually. So in my opinion, there's nothing... Here's the thing. We have not proven everything in the Bible as historically accurate. There's still so much out there that we have not uncovered. But there is nothing in archaeology has proven anything in the Bible wrong. And every single time we uncover something archaeologically, a document or a stele or a building, it always validates the Bible in some kind of a way. And so the fact is, yes, we can't prove this, but the fact that in all of our years, from the 1920s all the way up to now, and archaeology is booming even more, nothing has proven the Bible wrong historically. The track record is really good. And so all I might argue, yeah, you can't argue from silence. That's not a strong argument. But I can argue from a track record and a reputation and saying you can't really say this is not true when nothing has proven the Bible wrong. And we know there's so much that we don't know yet. In fact, we know that there are several warehouses out there in the Middle East that are just filled with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of scrolls that haven't even been translated yet because there's not enough people to translate it. Because these, I mean, how many people go to school for Akkadian and ancient Aramaic? I mean, that kind of stuff. So we don't know who he is. So here's possibilities. These are the theories that people have come up with. The, the problem with this title is the only really Dariuses that we know is Darius II and Darius III, and they're much later. They, they come much later and way past Daniel, way past all these events. And the other problem is there's nobody who's ever called Darius the Mede. Okay, remember, this is the Persian Empire. And there's no reason for them to acknowledge themselves as a Mede because the Medes are the, in, the, the lesser, the inferior part. In fact, the Medes were conquered by, we talked about this in 550, Cyrus II. His mother was a Median and his father was a Persian. And he took the throne and betrayed his grandfather, Asategus. And when he did that, he built the Persian Empire. He only allowed the Medes to have power in his kingdom because this was part of his family. The minute he died, none of the Persian kings allowed the Medes to have any power, and the Medes pretty much just collapsed at that moment and just became the Persian Empire or the Achaemenid dynasty. 
the Mead is not something that people really use because they were considered that you're only around because you're related to Cyrus kind of a thing. And so that's what makes this so unusual. It makes it so complicated. Some believe that Darius might be a title. And it's very possible. It's very possible the name Darius is a title, like Caesar is a title and Pharaoh is a title. And that, that's actually not, that's very probable because we know that pretty much all the kings in Babylon and all the kings of the Greeks and all the kings of the Persians would take another name when they came to the throne. Even the kings of Israel would do that. They would take another name when they came to the throne. And so they would come to the throne and they would pick a name. And Darius is a common name. And so it could be that this was just a name that he took. We also know that kings, often the more powerful they were, they liked to have multiple names. And that multiple, the more names you have, the more it just demonstrates this thing. So it could be a title. And the, for a long time, many Christian scholars held that this was um, Gubaro. Gabaro was a general, and he's also referred to as Ugabra, and this is a general of Cyrus. And supposedly there's a historical tradition that Cyrus said, the general who can figure out how to conquer Babylon, I will make him the king of Babylon. Remember, Cyrus is going to make himself king of kings, and he's still allowed kings to rule their own land. He allowed the kings, unlike the Persians, sorry, unlike the Assyrians and the Babylonians before him, where they didn't allow a king of Egypt or a king of Israel or a king of whatever. The Persians did. They allowed the, the countries to self-govern themselves. And so he says, I'll make thee the king of Babylon. And there was this tradition that this Gubaru actually was the one who figured it out, and he got rewarded with this. However, later archaeological documents recently, like in the last decade, have shown that this general actually was much later, much later after Cyrus had built his empire. And there's no evidence that this guy was actually a general while he was conquering Babylon. And, that, and the evidence is overwhelming that he was, a, be, was made a general later. And so this doesn't seem to fit. So that possibility has pretty much been rejected by all scholars, even though that was the most prominent one that people held. The other possibility is that this is Cyrus himself. This has become the most popular one recently. And more and more scholars are moving towards this, that this is Cyrus himself. And it makes sense because he could take it as a title. He was a Mede. He would be the only Persian who could say that he is a Mede because of his mother. And it's very likely that he could have made the Babylon his secondary palace. Babylon had for a long time been the most prominent capital and the most glorious capital in all the world. And even though Susa was the capital of, of the Persian Empire, it was not uncommon for them to have multiple capitals, especially why let this incredible place go to waste. And that he could have spent time there. It also makes sense that the age that he became king matches up to the age of Cyrus. And how long he's around, Darius the Mean matches up with Cyrus. And the fact that he would favor Daniel, because Cyrus was very favorable to other prophecies. He loved reading the prophecies and the religions of all the other religions. 
and he liked giving favor to all countries. He was probably the more, the most disposed favorably towards other kingdoms and other religions and other prophecies than any of the Persian kings. And so it seems very likely that he would very likely take Daniel under his wing. Because here's the other thing. Nobody ever kept the people from the previous dynasty. The first thing you would do when you come in is you would kill all. I mean, even as presidents, we get rid of the previous cabinet when a new um, party comes in. We don't kill them because we live in a good country overall. But we, do, we, we sack them in a firing kind of a sense. And that's what you do. You would kill everybody. You don't want some guy advising you who was from the previous kingdom and served all these Babylonian kings and might try to misadvise you so that you can, he can worm the Babylonians back into power. And the fact that he trusts Daniel, that's really rare. Not only does it show God's favor over Daniel, but it also shows that somebody is very um, favorably disposed towards men of other prophecies and religions and that kind of stuff. So there's a possibility here. However, there are kinks to this. Later, Daniel 9 says that he was the son of Asherus. But we know that Cyrus is actually the son of Cambius I. However, we know that Asherus is another name for Cyrus or Xerxes I. So it could be that Asherus isn't a common name that kings would take. And Cambius I could have taken that name. That's what, that's what happens. When they have multiple names, it just makes it so confusing. So that's a problem. However, there's another problem. It's very unlikely that even Cyrus referred to himself as the Mede. There's no historical writing whatsoever where Cyrus calls himself the Mede. And it's not impossible, but there's no evidence. But here's the thing. Neither one of these arguments disprove that this is Cyrus. Because Ashesurus could be another title for Cambius I. That is very probable, knowing what we know about throne names. Because it's Xerxes I's secondary name. And that's what he's referred to by in the book of Esther. Yes, we don't have any document of Cyrus calling himself the Mede. But that doesn't mean he never did. And then we, don't, we haven't uncovered every document. So all scholars agree that this is an argument for Cyrus being Darius the Mede based on a lack of evidence. But right now, the fact that there is no evidence against him being Darius the Mede, and these are probable, likely explanations, mean that this could be Cyrus II. And considering how Cyrus II is talked about in Isaiah, considering how he's portrayed in um, historical documents and what role he plays in Ezra and bringing them all back, it would not be uncommon for him to be here. But then once again, the question is, why is he referred to as Cyrus and Ezra, Cyrus and Isaiah, but he's not referred to as Cyrus here? And so right now, we have to just say, there's not enough evidence. There's not enough evidence to say this is not. There's not enough evidence to say it is. It just is. And... This would be a huge, this is considered one of the top like 10 passages that non-Christians throw at Christians for not trusting the Bible historically. I mean, this is up there. If it was family feud, it would be the top survey says. Okay, so 
if, if, if archaeology could uncover something, this would be a huge, huge win in that top ten kind of a thing. Unlike Belshazzar, he recognizes the skills of Daniel, and that's clear. It seemed like a good idea for Darius to appoint over the kingdom 120 satraps. Satraps is the name, a very common name for governors that ruled over the Persian Empire. We see this word over and over and over again. Yet there's no real evidence that the kingdom was divided among 120 districts. That doesn't mean that it wasn't. We just don't have any record of um, Darius or Cyrus or anybody dividing the kingdom into 120 providences. He would be in charge of the entire kingdom. And over them would be three supervisors, one of whom would be Daniel. So Daniel is going to be like one of three prime ministers in that equivalent. These satraps were accountable to them so that the king's interests might not incur damage. Now, this Daniel was distinguishing himself above the other supervisors and the satraps, for he had an extraordinary spirit. So once again, God is blessing Daniel for his character. In fact, the king intended to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So he's going to become the prime minister. He's going to become the vice regent, just like Joseph. Consequently, the supervisors and satraps were trying to find some pretext against Daniel in connection with the administrative matters. But they were unable to find any such damaging evidence because he was trustworthy and guilty of no negligence or corruption. So these men concluded, we won't find any pretext against this man Daniel unless it is in connection with the law of his God. They're trying to find. Okay, CNN has been digging and digging and digging, and they can't find anything. And that says something about Daniel's character. He is like the exception in the Bible for not finding anything on anybody. Now, this doesn't mean he has a sin or he hasn't, he's not perfect. But remember the word blameless when it says they're blameless or they're upright. That doesn't mean that they're without sin. I mean, we think of like, I'm, I'm blameless. Nobody can blame me for anything. Well, that's not true of any human. Blameless means that there's nothing that's unconfessed. No skeletons in the closet. Okay, so like when, the, when, like, when somebody's like, I'm going to run for president. Everybody's like, oh, he's going to save us because he's so great. And then, like, the opposite party finds a skeleton in the closet. They've had an affair. They did drugs, but they didn't inhale and all this kind of stuff. And then everybody's like, oh, so shocked that he's not perfect. It's like, surprise, surprise. Like, are you paying attention to the la all the years of America? Come on. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, he buried this and he covered this up and that kind of stuff. That's not blameless. Blameless is when they find that this guy has had an affair or he had a dodgy dealings with like corruption and government or whatever years ago and they all pull it out and a huge group of friends say, we already know about that. He confessed it. And here was what we can tell you. Him and his wife have been in counseling and he's in this group and he's not done that since then and he's grown here and their marriage is actually stronger than ever before or he's put that behind. In fact, he prosecuted all those people that he was in government corruption with and he's got people around him surrounding accountability. We can testify that that's the thing of the past and he confessed it. That's not a shocking, nobody knew it, brought it out. We know about it. Now, he didn't confess it to the whole world because that wasn't necessary at the time. But we know about it. And we can vouch for what he's doing now and where he is in that sense. Or she. 
That's blameless. It means that nobody can blame you or accuse you of anything that would be shocking because you've already beat them to the punch by confessing it and now surrendering to accountability to people around you. And so Daniel's not perfect, but there's nothing that they can find that he's been hiding because he has nothing that he's hidden. And that's his character. That's his character. If they can't get him to come down, this is just like Joseph. His character was good, so you attack him religiously. You attack his character. You take the thing that is good about him, and you use that against him. And so let's make a law that we know he'll violate because of his allegiance to Yahweh. This is the first time in all these stories that they're now specifically attacking him for his religious beliefs. Now, once have we seen any example of them specifically going after... Remember the first chapter? It was just, this is our policy, and you're not in line. The second chapter is, we're just going to kill all the advisors because they couldn't give us an answer. Nothing, no, no offense, it's just business. And the third one was, we didn't really make this law of bowing down and worshiping the statue because of you. You actually wouldn't have been noticed if these guys hadn't been looking around. And so this is the first time where they're actually specifically targeting Daniel and they're going to use his religious beliefs against him. Notice, it's because they're jealous. The Persians were all about pure bloodlines. When it came to the priests and it came to the kings and governors, they were all about pure-blooded Persians. And they were very tolerant to other religions and other nations, as long as you stayed down there on the totem pole. It will give you lots of freedom, but you're, you don't have the right to rule the empire. And so there's this jealousy that a Semitic man is superseding them and taking their positions, and they don't like that. And so they're going after them for control. They want control. Verse 6, so these supervisors and satraps came came by collusion to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. To all the supervisors of the kingdoms and the prefects and satraps and counselors and the governors, it seemed like a good idea for a royal edict to be issued and an interdict to be enforced. For the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any gods, god or human, other than you, O king, should be thrown into a den of lions. Now let the king issue a written interedict so that it cannot be altered according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. So King Darius issued the edict. They're playing to his ego. They're totally buttering up, flattering him, and playing to his ego. And they're saying, let's make a law. It is not possible that they're saying that only you can be worshipped. There's no way that that would ever happen in the historical record in that culture. One, no, no king would ever make himself the absolute sole object of worship. There were two predominant religions that were happening right now in Persia. The one was all the polytheistic gods, all the Persian gods. There were many, many, many people, the priesthood especially, who worshiped multiple gods. You would never make yourself the sole god 
because that would invoke the wrath of the gods and they would jack your life up so much. And no matter how arrogant and prideful you think you are, you cannot stand against the pantheon of gods that don't even care about you to begin with, let alone when you cocky put yourself above them. Nobody would ever do that. No record of that ever shows up in ever any religion. The other religion that was very dominant during this time was Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism was a religion developed by a man by the name of Zoroaster. And Zoroaster was a magi. And he was a philosopher, astrologer, religious person. And he developed this religion where they worshipped this soul god, Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda was, he actually believed, this was a dualistic god. It's the closest thing that you get to monotheism in the ancient world other than Yahweh. And they believe in this god, and this is basically his name is like the god of light. And they believe that he was his god, but simultaneously at the same time there was this other god of darkness. And they exist in the beginning. And this god of darkness was in the darkness, and he literally believed that he was the only god in the entire universe because he was in the darkness. He's ignorant. There was this other god of light, and this other god of light knows about the other god because he's the god of light, and he's the more powerful god. And so he decides to create the world. And when he creates the world, he brings light into the world. And when he brings light in the world, he illuminates the darkness of this dark god. And the darkness god realizes he's not the only god. And he becomes ticked. And he becomes so angry that he's not the most powerful god or even the only god that he actually decides to inject darkness into the creation of this light god. And thus humans are corrupt and creation is corrupt. And so they believe that the more you worship the God of light and the more that you make good choices in your life, the more that the darkness would be driven out of the world and eventually the Shashafant, this Messiah figure, would come and he would deliver us from the darkness and eradicate all darkness from creation and bring all nothing but light to humanity. Now that feels very similar to Christianity. and that, But they could be that this religion has been influenced by the Ju Judaism that has been around for a while. But we don't know. We don't know enough about to say what was influenced. So this religion was very dominant and becoming very prominent. And certain kings would promote this religion and other kings would pr promote the polytheistic gods. And it all depended on who was the king. But most kings promoted the religion of Zoroastrianism. Or sorry, the, the kings of the, Babel, the, the pagan gods. And so there was a huge political battle happening in Persia of who had the most power, the priesthoods of the pagan gods or this Zoroastrianism. And this Zoroastrianism was becoming more and more influential, and the priests of the pagan gods were re refuting that more and more and more, and there was a political battle happening. It could be that he is trying to strengthen Zoroastrianism. And that he's part of this battle, and they're using this political pretense of, we're not going to allow anybody from the other religion or the other side to worship their gods, because if we don't let them worship their gods on penalty of death, then Zoroastrianism can be built up more. Now, we don't know. That's an argument from silence once again. But what is clear is the way that the Hebrews, the Aramaic is being used here, and what we know of culture most likely what is being said here 
is that he is the only human that you can pray to the gods through. That what he's doing is he's using his political power to control the God, to control the people's prayers. They believe that the more you pray to the gods and the more you're devoted to them, the more powerful the gods became. Or the more light would enter the world because you're praising the Zoroastrianism. And what most likely is happening here is not that he's actually saying, I'm the only God. Especially, there's no way you'd do this, I'm the only God for 30 days. Okay? But for 30 days, I am the only man, priest, that you can pray to the gods through. And that's an uncommon. We see that with Moses. We see that with Aaron. That's the priesthood. You would pray to God through the priesthood. You would sacrifice for your sins through the priesthood. You were not allowed to do that yourself. That's what makes Christianity so unique, is that with the Holy Spirit, we are the priesthood. And so he's probably saying, by controlling it for 30 days, if he's chosen Zoroastrianism, which we think, or it might be possible he's chosen the pagan gods, he's going to seriously undermine the power and the influence of this opposing religion if they're not allowed to practice their religion for 30 days. And if everything comes through him, then he can control the religion. And this makes him more powerful. So most likely, the better way to translate this is that you are the only mediator of all prayers for these 30 days. And he's probably not doing this for the whole kingdom. There's no way he can regulate the every single farmer and the entire empire from the Mediterranean to India. It's mostly just the officials because this is not about controlling people's lives. This is about power. And power is fought in the politics. So this is probably what's going on. So they're appealing to his power. They're appealing to his arrogance. They're appealing to his pride. Notice it says, make a law that you cannot alter. The Persians actually believed that when you make a law, it could not be altered in any kind of way. It could not be done away with. They believed that they were appointed by the gods to rule. And they cannot make mistakes then. Therefore, they cannot make a law that, oh, wait a minute, that wasn't a good law. We should get rid of it or change it. Because they don't make mistakes. So this king has put himself on a divine pedestal and is part of a law system that believes that kings never make mistakes when they make laws, ironically is going to be at the mercy of his own law. He is being duped. This divine pedestal king, who's supposed to be infallible, is being duped by his satraps into a law that's going to hurt his best friend. And when he realizes it, he's going to be like, oops, and he's going to freak out about it. And so what God is doing in this story is he's showing that the people who think that they know everything that's going on and that they're the wisest people and they're on a divine pedestal, and trust me, I know how to handle this country, can be easily duped into some stupid law that hurts the most prominent people and the thing people they need the most and really ultimately speaking they're not really running in their nation with wisdom they're running in their nation with their pride and what they're afraid of and so he makes this law and now they've got daniel verse 10 when daniel realized that a written decree had been issued he entered his home where the windows in his upper room opened toward jerusalem 
Three times daily he was kneeling and offering prayers and his thanks to his God, just as he had been accustomed to do previously. Then those officials who had gone to the king came by collusion and found Daniel praying and asking for help before his God. So they appointed the king and said to him, Did you not issue an edict to the effect for the next thirty days? Anyone who prays to any god or human other than you, O king, would be thrown into a den of lions. The king replied, replied, That is correct, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah? Notice, like, he's, he's just a captive. He wasn't, he's not one of us. Pays no attention to you, O king, or to the edict that you issued. Three times daily he offers his prayers. Now, notice how Daniel handles this. He doesn't scream and yell and protest that this is wrong and that they're defying his rights and that they're anti him as his religion. I've been doing this all these years and you never had a problem and now you do. And he doesn't yell and scream. He doesn't fight it. He doesn't protest it. But he doesn't change his behavior either. He continues to pray. It does not change his behavior in his allegiance to God. But it doesn't change his behavior in an angry, protesting, screaming kind of way either. He just continues. Now, he also doesn't flaunt it. Now you're like, well, opening the windows and standing there in the window and praying feels like you're flaunting it. But remember, how many windows do you think are in the capital city? And it says that he did what he had always done. He's not doing anything different than he's ever done before. It's not like he's going into Times Square now and sitting in their public and now yelling and screaming his prayers for everybody knows just because they made a law. He's going to his own bedroom with his own windows out of hundreds of thousands of windows in the city and he's doing what he's always done. Nothing's changed. He's still committed to his routine with God, but yet he's not making a big deal of it. The only reason that anybody would notice him is because they intentionally made this law to hunt him down. That's the only reason they would have ever seen him. He remains faithful to God, despite the consequences. Verse 14, When the king heard this, he was very upset and began thinking about how he might rescue Daniel. Oops, how how do I get around to this? Now notice, with all of his wisdom, he can't think of a new law. He can't think of a new law to undo this. Until late afternoon, he was struggling to find a way to rescue him. Then those men who came by collusion to the king and said to him, Recall, O king, that it is law the Medes and the Persians, that no edict or decree that the king issues can be changed. So that the king issues, um, so the king gave the order, and Daniel was brought and thrown into a den. Now this word den is more like a pit, um, not like a cave or something like that, of lines. The king consoled Daniel by saying, Your God, whom you continually serve, will rescue you. Then a stone was brought and placed over the opening to the den. And the king sealed it with his signet ring and with those of his nobles, so that nothing could be changed in with regard to Daniel. Then the king departed to his palace, but he spent the night without eating, and no decisions were brought to him. He was unable to sleep. So before he closes it, notice that he is not converted. He, He appreciates Daniel. He has respect for Daniel's God. He even seems to have a hint that he believes that God can save him somehow. 
Because most likely, if Daniel has become your most trusted advisor and you're going to make him the head prime minister of the entire empire, you know all the stories of the Babylonian empire. And because you believe in gods and you believe in supernatural things, you're not likely to distrust this, especially when there are many people who can verify these things. So, But he does say, your God, your God. That implies that he has not converted. Yet he says, maybe your God can save you, which implies that he does believe that God has the power to do this. And so he's hoping that this is one of the situations. Notice, this king who's ruling the entire empire from the Mediterranean to the Indian border ultimately can't think of any way to uncover, undo his own ding-dongness in making this law. And he has to humble himself and throw himself at the mercy of the God of this captive Jew. And this shows that the most powerful man can't deal with this. The most powerful man can't deal with this. Now in the morning, verse 19, at the earliest sign of daylight, the king got up and rushed to the lion's den. As he appointed, approached the den, he called out to Daniel in a worried voice. And Daniel's servant of the living God, who was... Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you continually serve able to rescue from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent me his angel and closed the lions' mouths so that they have not harmed me because I was found to be innocent before him, nor have I done any harm to you, O king. Once again, good old history channel. We know that lions actually can, will feed. And when they eat, they can go like at least a month before they feel like they have to eat again. In fact, daytime, like there's this really cool thing on Netflix called Our Planet. And it's these like amazing like documentaries on these animals. And they've seen things that they've never seen before. And what they have shown is that you can see these video footage of lions and these gazelles and zebras are just walking right by the lions in broad daylight because there's no way these lions can take these things down and eat them because they hunt at dark. And some of these animals can outrun these lions. But they, they depend on their night vision as lions that the gazelles and zebras don't have night vision. And so they depend on stealth rather than speed to get these things. And we know that when they've eaten, they can go a long time without feeling hungry and without eating again. So the History Channel's like, well, it just happened to be that they had already like devoured and eaten some humans that had been punished like on Monday. And so they weren't hungry. And Daniel was thrown down there. And the, the Persians just forgot which den had already been fed and which den had not been fed. They just got lucky and everybody was like, it's a miracle. What's the problem with that? I mean, other than the Persians aren't dumb. You can prove the other yeah. Right away. <laughs> the lions are so hungry that they rip the other sad traps apart before they even hit the ground. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. The Darius wrote to all the peoples of the nations, verse 25, and language groups who were living in all the land, peace and prosperity. I have issued an edict that throughout all the dominion of my kingdom, People are to revere and fear the God of Daniel. For he is a living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His authority is forever. He rescues and delivers and performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. And he has rescued Daniel for the power of the lions. So this Daniel 
prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now that's what makes people think that this Darius and Cyrus are different people, is that last statement. Now notice that just like Nebuchadnezzar, Darius issued an edict and a letter to his entire empire declaring Yahweh as the most powerful God. And he used them actually the same words, that I have a great kingdom, but his kingdom is everlasting and never ends. I am a great man, but this king is a greater God than anything I can imagine. But notice that he didn't do what Nebuchadnezzar had always done. And worship this God or I'll kill you all. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He has, he's more disposed. But what's so powerful about this is the Babylonians and the Persians were the two most powerful empires the world had ever seen. And yet this God, this God of this teeny little podunk nation that's about the size of New Jersey that most people in the world have never heard of, that was easily conquered and taken to captivity and are mostly just a bunch of refugees, has constantly one-upped these kings and these gods time after time after time. And so powerfully and so convincingly that two of the most powerful kings ever have written inter-empire edicts and letters to everybody proclaiming that Yahweh is supreme. Because God's ultimate goal was that Israel be a blessing to the entire world. And that when the world looked at Israel, they would be like, wow, you are blessed far more than anybody else. Who is your God? And Darius and Nebuchadnezzar II is saying, this is that God. And that's powerful. That's powerful. This is the character of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They never fought for their own rights. They never shamed people. They never yelled and screamed, rebuked them, and trashed them. They never condemned them. They just, in their character, stayed committed to their allegiance to Yahweh. And they treated the people around them with love and respect. And God used them as a powerful witness and changed empires and change empires. This is what it means to be a believer standing firm to their faith in a culture that might oppose you intentionally or things might just oppose you because it just happens to be circumstantial on you. This is how we respond. Jesus said they will know who you belong to by the way that you treat each other. The powerful part of this section, this is the end of the first half of the book. This is the narrative. This is the stories. What God has now shown is that he is absolutely in control of all historical events. There is no historical event that's out of his control. There's no edict of any empire that is out of his control. There's no king that he cannot bend to his will, raise up, or lower down. There is no nation that he cannot direct. And there is no God that he cannot thwart. He is absolutely providentially in control of all things in the world. Nothing happens without him allowing it. Therefore, if this God continuously proves himself over and over and over again, 
being in control of history, being able to direct the lives of his own people and their own nation throughout time, and now being able to direct the lives of pagans and other nations, regardless of borders. Then when we enter into the second section and we see him prophesying the nations that are yet to come, the implication is he can do it in the future too. This is the witness of Yahweh. The whole Bible has shown that he can direct the paths of his people. This book has shown that he can direct the paths of his people even in the midst of pagan nations and pagan kingdoms and pagan gods. Now he's going to say, therefore, trust me that I have your future in my hand. And he's going to predict in the second section new kingdoms that are going to come along that are going to act in just the same exact corrupt, arrogant kind of ways. But these kingdoms are going to specifically target the Jews, like Daniel was specifically targeted in Genesis 6. And they're going to bring great persecution and great suffering and misery upon the Jews. But you shouldn't lose hope because God can take care of you. He is the God of the future as much as he is the God of the present and the past. For holy, holy, holy is Yahweh God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that's the point of this section. We have seen him here. Now great, great, great persecution is going to be predicted and prophesied for Israel. Will they believe that God is still in control? Will we believe that God is still in control? We have so many historical records in this Bible and our own lives and the testimony of fellow believers of God being, over to, being able to overcome anything. And now we are entering into uncertain times. And even if there's a revival in America, and even if things change, which I totally believe is possible, that doesn't mean one day in the future it won't have a revival and things won't turn around. God is in control. And there's nothing he can do. And that's the message of this second section that we go into.